Welcome to the Deserve Podcast, the podcast where we ask the question, do you deserve an amazing retirement? And the answer is obviously yes. My name is Pat Charles Ivanella. I'm managing editor of Deserve Magazine. And as always, across the table and the other mic, I have our CEO and founder of Retirement Architecture, Brett Sasso. Uh, Brett, I've been I've been away for a couple of weeks, but I've been listening to the podcast. You got me working on another project inside the organization, but I wanted to be here for so this So you're one. okay with me making sport of you while you're not <laughs> in the studio, I guess. I, I wanted to be here for this one, no matter what I was doing. I, I We have a great guest. Can you fill us in on who we have today? Yeah, it's it's... It is something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And, you know, I, I we just got uh, Professor Terrence O'Dean on, on the call here. Hello, Professor. I want to first say hello and say thank you for coming on board. But then I have the little backstory here. So I, sure. I want to thank you for joining us today. Well, so, hello and thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. And you, you are a special guest because sometimes, you know, when people learn things and I learned from you and, and reading things that you've written before. And I've done some of my own extrapolations that I want to share with the people that follow this podcast. We have quite a good following now. I'm actually, I'm shocked every time because you don't think things like this actually have a chance anymore in this, this world that we live in. But I'm finding that, that that idea that things virally do get out is happening with this podcast. So we largely speak to the baby boomer generation, which uh, I'm going to guess you're one of, right? So I have the fortune of seeing you now. We don't usually get to see someone during a podcast. So I love the fact that we have this, this great connection and I can see you in the studio today. But as, as we speak to baby boomers, I think that we happen to represent a very unique generation and a, and a unique timeline. And I'm concerned as someone who has seen the ugly side of two pretty good down markets. And by the way, I don't count COVID-19 as a down market. I, I refer to that as a blink correction is what I usually call it. But having lived through 2000 as a young builder developer and lost everything that I saved, believing that the dot-com was real and going places, didn't know it was going to take many, many decades for that to happen. And then again, in 2008, I've, I've been someone who's been very hard hit by the idea that the, the way to go and save forever was the stock market. And I got so beat up in those two events that I tried to avoid it. And I still do today. I basically, the only stock I own is the companies that I run. I, I don't really play in the stock market anymore. So I'm, I'm one of those people, right? That twice bitten, you know, really, really shy. And I was looking for a way to communicate to our audience that if I was, if I was hit by two down markets in my life, it was okay because I had a chance to get back. Now I'm at a point in my life where if there's a big one coming, you know, it's like Fred Sanford, right? There's a big one coming. If there's a big one coming, would I have enough time if I was still hit the way I was hit in 2000 and 2008? Would I have time to recover? Or would I spend my entire quality retirement years waiting for my money to come back? So how I found you, professor was I was actually scouring the internet looking for some sort of validation from someone other than me, someone with accolades that you have, that would help people understand that their behavior could end up potentially being their worst enemy. Now, what I like about our interview today with you is this hasn't been rehearsed. We literally just started speaking five minutes before this microphone went hot. And I'm hoping that your experience in studying the 
institutional investors or the portfolio investors and how much time you've dedicated to that might be able to be applied without you know, exact science behind it, because I don't know that we really could, but it's kind of your opinion that I'm, I'm looking for to help other people either think that my, my third force in the retirement perfect storm, which is the first one is taxes. I tell everybody it's taxes bubble behavior. That's the retirement perfect storm. If we get into a very rough tax environment from overspending in our government, that could be one pull against our retirement lifestyle. Number two is the bubble. I do believe we have a fairly uh, robust bubble going right now in, in the markets. But the behavior is the side that I fear the most. And it's that idea that people don't like to lose. Um, so you're very accomplished, obviously. And, and I wouldn't mind if you would would kind of highlight some of your accomplishments instead of me talking all about you. I'd love for you to just tell us some of the things that you've done. You know, it's it's I've seen most of your things that you've published. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and why I picked you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, I'm a professor, the Red Family Foundation professor uh, at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. And I have uh, spent a, the last 30 years studying investor behavior. I'm, I work in a field that is more generally called behavioral finance, but my research within that area is, has been focused on primarily on individual investors. I've looked a little at institutional investors, but primarily on individual investors. I, uh, well, I have one, one unusual, uh, uh, I guess, background thing as a professor, which is I didn't get a bachelor's degree till a month before I turned 40. I, wow. was a I was a college dropout. You're right. I'm a baby, baby boomer born in 1950. Uh, dropped out of college, came back, finished my undergrad degree. As an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I met uh, a psychologist named Danny Kahneman. I don't know if you've seen a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's um, quite a good book. Danny, later, I met him in 88. In 2002, he won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, for, wow. you know, for, for having a massive influence on the social sciences. So that was very fortuitous for me because I got excited about the sort of work he was doing. I went and talked to him at his house one day. I wanted to get a PhD in psychology and do this same sort of uh, work he did, which is studying how people actually make decisions. And he said, why don't you go into finance and apply some of what you've learned? And I took him up on that. I got my PhD in finance. And so when I went into finance, the dominant theory, I'm not saying every single person, but the dominant theories in, in finance were all based on the assumption that when it comes to money, people behave rationally. Hmm. Kahneman's research suggested otherwise. And so I came into finance and said, okay, what if we start out with these same theories and we tweak them a little bit? We say people behave systematically, but in a biased way. They have various biases. And I'll talk about the disposition effect in a few minutes, which is one of the things we, you know, that you asked me to talk about. And 
actually one of the very first papers I wrote uh, as a PhD student was about the disposition effect, which is this tendency to hold on to your losers and sell your winners. And what I think drives this essentially is you are trying to avoid or postpone regret. If you buy something and it goes down and you sell it for loss, you feel bad. How bad you feel probably has something to do with the magnitude of the loss, but you feel bad. If you sell, buy something, it goes up and you sell it, you feel good. So people tend to sell the winners, hang on to the losers and tell themselves stories like, mm -hmm. this one's coming back. It's just a paper loss. Uh, you know, I actually had a broker before I, I was an academic. You know, I was, I, in my 30s, I did some trading. I did a lot of things I would recommend not doing today, but I learned from it. I had a broker once suggest a stock. I bought it. It went down. And he said to me, when the, when the market realizes what we know, this thing's coming back. And as I was on the phone, I thought to myself, I, for one, know nothing. So I, I'm Whatever not he's sure. saying about the we, it isn't you, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, we is French. I'm taking you. a loss, and I don't think you really know that much. So, <laughs> But psychologically, it's easier to sell winners. Is that a horrible thing? Probably not. Um, from a tax point of view, uh, it's suboptimal. In taxable accounts, it makes more sense to sell your losses and get some capital losses than to be paying additional taxes. I think you guys probably agree that paying lower taxes without breaking law is a sensible thing to do. Oh, very much uh, so. And, um, and I did in my study, I also found out I didn't have a theoretical reason why this should be bad behavior. But when I studied it, it turns out that the decisions that these investors were making were working out poorly for them. The winners they sold went on to, un to outperform the losers they hung on to. So that's the disposition effect. That was one example of... Uh, a behavior that was predicted in Kahneman's work and ran contrary to what economists assumed. In fact, economists just basically assumed since it was tax optimal to sell losers and hang on to winners, that must be what people do. So my, my career has been mostly focused on empirically looking at the trading records of actual investors and showing that they behave the way psychologists predicted and not the way economists assumed. And that's that's incredibly interesting. And so the, so there's a fly in the ointment on the individual that I talk to, and I think the word is greed. So what what keeps us from making those decisions right now? And and again, baby boomers, how much higher do we have to have it go? I try to say to people, it's not the, the real question is when do you have enough when it comes to a baby boomer because our game gets shorter and shorter our playing field gets shorter and shorter but why aren't they trying to take this good feeling right now that they could have by having all these winners and instead they're potentially holding themselves out to be dealing with all the losers how how do we get our arms around this it's it's a it's got to be one of the most difficult struggles for someone is to actually take the winnings why aren't they doing it? Why aren't more people taking the winnings right now? So, and by that you would mean 
cashing out some of their equity portfolio and going into something potentially safer? Safer. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, my, my, my credo is safe money is right. you got to establish a safe bucket of money. And I have a difficult time because people feel like if they get out, they're missing more. So they will have regret. Yeah, the regret they will regret. I, I, well, you've already mentioned that you remember uh, the dot-com bubble of 99, 2000. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I do. I, I do as well. Actually, I was on the other end of that, which is by 90, late 97, I was convinced that the market was overpriced. And I wanted to build a house at the time. And I thought, well, we have enough money to build the house. But if the portfolio crashes, we won't. So I took enough money. Yeah, I took money out. And I'm living in the house right now. So I'm happy with my decision. But as a timer, that wasn't good timing as a yeah, it was a rational enough decision. Um, I think part of what fueled that dot-com bubble was people who were not typically investors in high-tech stocks becoming progressively more envious or jealous of other people who are making all this money. Uh, and then at some point we ran out of new people to put money into that bubble. <laughs> So I've often quipped that my friend Hannah, who was a retired art school teacher in Toronto, was the last human being to put money into the dot-com bubble. <laughs> and after she put her money in, there was no one left. And it, it is at least true that Hannah was, had all her money in Canadian mutual funds. She had a friend who was also an art school teacher down in Ohio who made a lot of money in 1999 in high-tech stocks, Hannah got, one might say, jealous, and then put everything in, you know, went all in on high-tech. And without someone to back her up to come in and put more money in, uh, the, the bubble ran out of, out, out of uh, fuel. So, um, yeah, people worry that they're missing out. Um, and people worry on the other end sometimes when things start to go down, um, they'll do sort of a panic sell. One thing that I think is important um, is to try to come up with a long-term plan that you can stick to in volatile times. So if you've decided that you're, you should be, you know, whatever you decide that that's right for you to have in the market, that shouldn't be something that you suddenly double when the market takes a jump and it's not something that you should completely immediately pull the plug on if the market takes a drop. You should be not reacting emotionally. And then going back to what you were saying, I think you're right. If you're a baby boomer, if you're my age, you know, I was born in 1950 and you have enough to live comfortably on, that money shouldn't be at risk right now, in my opinion. I think you can risk in a way, you can say you could take a long-term risk with the money that you think is going to go to your kids, or you could have a conversation with them about that. But if you are in a position, not everyone is. So it's a bit of a luxury to have gotten to our age and to be able to say, I'm okay. I got enough. You know, I'm, right. I'm going to be fine. And in that, in that situation, I think the rational thing would be to reduce the risk because 
The upside is you end up with more money than you need and you don't need that. And the downside is you end up with less money than you need and you do aren't, need that. Aren't we fighting against something that's innate? Don't we want more as human beings? Don't we always want more? And so aren't we like- Well, that's the greed. Own, so the greed card comes in, right? Yeah. The greed is, is now the, the problem that we're seeing. And you know, I, I love what you just said because you just made me feel smarter. Right. Because this is exactly what I've been trying to communicate to people is why do you want to put yourself in that position? Isn't it isn't it a good idea to isolate a certain amount of your portfolio? I actually try to use the old rule of 100. But what I've learned is if I'm talking to a 60 year old, I actually flip the rule of 100 over and I try to take the 40 percent of the money and make it the safe money and leave the 60 because then I'm at least right. giving them that little concession of, yeah, there's there's maybe yeah. another market yeah. high no, around that- the next. That's the number. So Benjamin Graham, I think, used that rule or suggested it. I don't know if you know Jane Bryan Quinn. She wrote a personal finance column for a long time. She used to take 110 minus your age. So that would leave a six-year-old at 50-50. I think that as a first step, those are sensible rules. Now, again, circumstances matter. Um, And it's, in reality, the more, you know, the more wealth you've accumulated, the more slack you have one way or another. Right. Um, But it's particularly for people who know that they have enough to be comfortable. It it would seem to me to make sense to reduce the risk of, and, you know, I, it, for someone and, you know, to be a hundred percent in the market and know that if you lost 30% of your portfolio, you'd be in trouble is a crazy place to be because it's a crazy place to be. You're right. And when we yeah. do these blueprints that we build, they are completely custom. This is not some out of box solution. When we built the, the blueprints for designing retirement, it, the whole idea was to help people identify when they have enough and what their life would look like if, as long as certain set of assumptions could hold true. So our assumptions are not necessarily Pollyanna. We're saying taxes are likely going to go up because of the, the, um, the massive amount of, of expense to carry this growing debt. And two, the markets will become more volatile, inflation, add that in, all of these things. But we basically stick with this this basic core competency that if you have enough and we can identify that in a print that you have enough, that'll give you your lifestyle. And we even use retirement dreams. I put dream boards into our blueprints so that people can try to pick out the path for their retirement dreams for that very narrow window of retirement. But my trouble is that we're, we're trying to subscribe to your, your idea of behavior that people will feel good if they make the money now and they won't have to struggle with the idea of selling the losers if they are able to apportion themselves accordingly. But the challenge is trying to get somebody to think that tomorrow isn't a new market high and damn it, if I'm going to miss it, you know, that's where we're trying to bring some sensibility in. It's not resonating yeah, with a yeah, lot of right. people. Oh, I know. So many years ago, uh, actually, probably around 2006 or something, um, I encouraged my mother-in-law who had her husband had died and they, she had some real estate uh, 
you know, the wealth that she had was mostly concentrated in local real estate. And I suggested to her that she sell some of it. And I said, I'm not predicting, I don't predict where markets go. I agree with you that by historical standards, the current market looks high, but I also find that it's quite difficult to predict what the market is going to do in the next year. Yeah, I just don't know. No, no so I said to her, I don't know what real estate's going to do. I said, it's high by historical standards. Um, but I do know you're under diversified. So I was just saying, you should just, you have enough to live on. But if, you know, the big thing I was saying, but if there were a massive earthquake in Berkeley tomorrow, you would no longer have enough to live on. So why don't you reduce that risk? And she said to me, well, I can't sell now. I said, oh, why not? And she said, the market's going up. Hmm. And by the way, what that means really is it has gone up. Nobody knows where it's going. I love that. But, yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. She said, the market's going up. And I said, oh, I understand. You'd rather sell after it goes down. And she said, no. <laughs> That's great. And I said, then what you mean is you want to sell exactly at the top. Well, good luck with that. That's a great strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And you know what? That's actually, that probably is going to make so many people go, ah, because that is it. It is exactly what people are trying to do. They're trying to guess the top, which the only way you know the top is when you're looking at it from the bottom. You know, there's old saying in Jaws, the movie, remember when, when uh, someone asked Brody, why do you live on an island? He said, it's only an island if you look at it from the water. Okay. You know, it's like, when do you know you're at a top? Well, you don't know until you're looking up at it. So if you're on it, it's obviously, if it's still more to go, you can't see it yet. But I struggle with intelligent people every day where we build very, what I think, very modest, not overly conservative, even the fact that I flipped my rule of 100 over. Yeah. I'm trying to say, you know what, I don't know that it's 40, because it depends on how much you've accumulated over your years. Yes. And if you really love the game, if you really love the gamble, it's a lot faster in Vegas, you can have all this excitement and, in, in, you know, a spin of the wheel every 15 minutes, you could have a have the same excitement. But I'm I just can't help people understand that they could put themselves into my interpretation or my own, um, what I took out of your disposition effect paper is that if someone is at that point when they don't sell and they could have had the euphoria and tell people about it, I still pe tell people I sold and made money on Apple stock. I did it so long ago, I would be embarrassed to tell anybody what I sold it at, but I still felt good I made money on Apple stock. But the challenge is, how will people deal with the loser side of this? And my, my behavior side of the retirement perfect storm is that if you get so caught up in not wanting to take the loss and the other culprit in this is the financial advisor who also doesn't want to have it on his, his resume that he took the loss, that the two people will take the sawtooth path all the way down to the bottom of the market. And if it's, if it's more like a... I use the Nikkei 225 a lot. I go back and I look at it from 1989. And I yeah, say, well, you know what? Why? That's one of the joys of being older. You can right, right. You can that. actually talk about that. I, I, actually, I actually bought put warrants on the Nikkei back in 89, but wow. I didn't hold them. Interesting story there because 
I wrote, I bought them when the Nikkei was around 30,000. As you probably remember, got up to nearly 40,000. Right, 38. My warrants went from being worth 20,000 down to about a little over 2,000. So mm-hmm. I was taking a huge loss. And then I ended up, you know, selling out as they went back up just to get out of the situation. In the end, they would have been worth, you know, 10 times what I paid for them. Oh, my because- God. If, 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 again, there's that damn crystal ball, right? So behind yeah. me on my, yeah. my fake fireplace here in, in, the, in the room is a crystal ball that I actually yeah, bought sure. for the TV commercial, but it was too damn heavy for me to hold in the TV commercial. Yeah. But I what we're it. talking about is what could have happened if, if you only knew that that Nikkei was going to fail those, those puts would have been worth a fortune because it just yeah. went down and down and down oh, yeah. and down. Yeah. So it's for, for me, there was this learning about emotions, learning about how hard it is to sell for a loss. Like when that, those put warrants dropped from 20,000 to about 2,000, there was no way I was going to sell there because emotionally losing 18 or losing 20 felt almost the same. Um, but I learned a big lesson about not getting into positions that I didn't have to get into that were way too emotionally overwhelming because you don't want to, you don't want, want to be being knocked back and forth by your emotions, uh, over these big financial decisions. You want to be able to, you know, the markets, what I say, you, you probably shouldn't have more volatility in your portfolio than you can stomach or else you you shouldn't have more than you can sleep with uh you know um and uh which doesn't mean i i you know i don't think you're you're also not saying go to zero you're just saying no 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 it's but it's it's that finding that balance and we went as far as trying to build it in a way that people could visualize it through their whole life to show them Hey, if you want these assumptions dialed up a little bit more aggressive right now, the big thing is, Hey, can you increase the inflation on, on my spending? Okay. Well, that's new. I have not had that as a request. I'd have people complaining that we were using 0.75 of their budget, having a 1.5% inflation factor. Now I have people saying, I think it's going to be six. I said, if I do a 6% compounding inflation, you don't have enough money. (laughs) You will, you won't make it under any scenario. So what I do you think is currently reasonable? I'm sorry? What do you think is currently reasonable? I still think, I think what we're seeing right now is a little bit of an inflated inflation. I don't know that this inflation that we're seeing right now is part of a progressive rise. I think it's a reaction to some, some unfortunate things around the world. So I think what we're seeing right now, and by the way, I'm the guy that's buying plywood at $75, $80 a sheet right now as I'm, as I'm doing renovations home. I don't believe that price will be there next year. I do think between the fires in California and, and, and the Northwest, there are, there are things in this chain that are causing the spike that we're seeing. But I do think that a 3% on three quarters of one's budget is not out of the question, but I don't think it's on everything. You know, I just talked to a gentleman whose home price isn't going up that much, and, and we know taxes aren't going up by, if 3% compounding on taxation, I couldn't be in my house today. So we know that that's not happening. So that's what I think. But that's I reasonable. try to use something yeah. a little bit more conservative. Uh-huh. Fear mongering isn't part of our world. What is part of our world is 
is as much of what you studied and talked about as anything else. It's the, the idea that you are sitting there, Mr. Jones, at the high parts of a market. If it is a Nikkei type of crash that comes our way, you won't have time to wait for your feelings to get better about getting your money back because you'll outlive it. The Well, the Nikkei, it's going to come back one of these days. Yeah, 32 years later, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe 40. It, it started, it, it's definitely started to. It did touch 30,000 in the last couple of months. So it did touch yeah, it, but, but it backed yeah, back down to 27,000. So yeah, but it's still nowhere near the height. So my, my worry is that, our, did we build the same mountain that they built in Japan, which, you know, the inflation of that time, all the things that you were probably making your decision to go with the put puts on the market there because you recognize that the inflation was out of control. They can't afford bread. Something, right? It's too high. I'd never taken an economic, actually, when I actually bought those, I had not yet taken an economics course. (laughs) I did it on the basis of, I read articles that said that the emperor's palace was worth more than California. (laughs) I thought that is, that is crazy. That is crazy. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, so that's our big picture here is we're trying to help people with more than just me and, and my webinars and some podcasts. I, I really wanted to try to bring a perspective that's completely detached. Like we've never talked about this. I didn't lobby my ideas to you, which I like the fact that we did this the way we did it today. I literally got up from my desk five minutes before we were supposed to meet and walked in and, and said, I'm ready to go. And, and I loved your idea of getting your audio perfect through Zoom. So I think this was a brilliant idea. But I, I think that you're, you said without any type of coaching or prodding or me trying to steer you in, you said exactly what I'm trying to get people to understand. If you take some off the table right now, let's say it's, it's 40% of a million dollars, I'm moving 400,000 into some kind of indexing strategy, whatever it may be, that they'll never feel bad about that decision because they made a lot of money. They did it at the top or near top or, you know, just past the top, whatever the case may be, they'll feel good about that part. The other side is going to be where they'll remain conflicted based on what happens. And what I know is that if I help them in that, that getting to understand their behavior a little bit more, I am keying on behavior as the biggest part of the retirement perfect storm that maybe they can check that behavior now and, and heed this warning and, and your pedigree and your study. And, and it's, so, it's so relevant to what these individuals are going to be faced with. And I love the way you say it. They'll be, they'll be conflicted on selling the losers. Nobody wants to be a loser. Well, the best way to become a loser is to sell you know, halfway down to the bottom of the market because you think it's coming up the next day. Do you, so you're... Most of your listeners, or uh, many of them, are are baby boomers. Is that almost correct? all? Almost all. Right, of them. because this is not. The, I wouldn't give the same advice to twenty year old students. No, just to be clear, you know, if if a twenty year old came to me, I'd say, you know, yes, the market is expensive, but you've got another 30, 40 years to go, and most of your earning power is ahead of you. Absolutely. And I, but so you can you can afford to take risks with what is a relatively small financial portfolio since most again most of your net worth is in your ability to earn money that's most but but baby boomers it's getting to be time to uh yeah 
pull back a little if you haven't. I agree. The 20 year old, the best thing that could happen to them is the market does crash. So they could, oh, yeah, so they could dollar cost average down their, their current investments and ride it all the way up. So, so I have a question now that you, we, we shift from one demographic to the next about millennials. Let's just talk about them. I have a question about these new retail investors. They're using new social forums like Reddit and apps like Coinbase and Robinhood. Is this sort of showing the end of the old Warren Buffett, slow and steady blue chip fundamentals? Are we changing? Are they changing the playing field here for us? Well, I think it was it Benjamin Graham who said that in the short run, uh, the market's a voting machine and the long run, it's a weighing machine. I love that. <laughs> um, so uh, in the long run, it's going to be a weighing machine. This is, this is different from, but somewhat analogous to 1999. I was invited onto a local public TV station, uh, KQED in 1999. And one of the other guests had just written a book about the new economy. And I'm not used to feeling like the old fogey in the group. Um, you know, I'm a Ber Ber I'm a Berkeley guy. You know, we're <laughs> usually. <laughs> um, and uh, he was going on and on about that. You know, I didn't understand. It was the clicks. It was the this. It was that. And I said all of that is good, but there has to be some plan to make a profit for a company. The, the shareholders may be willing to wait 10 years to see that profit. Some of them might have, but sooner or later, there has to be a business plan that results in a profit. And he kept saying, no, no, you just don't understand. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, I, I was on the, I was basically on the Warren Buffett side of the Benjamin Graham side. I'm saying in the long run, Companies that make money are more valuable to own than companies that don't make money. Um, in the short run, that's not necessarily true. Right. In and the short like run, yeah. In the short run, companies that attract a lot of buyers go up, irrespective of whether they're making a dime. Some of them someday will make a dime, and others won't. Right. They trade. These kids trade like they're on a black ops mission, seek, destroy, extract. It's almost like they're, they grew up on these video games their whole life and they trade like with missile strikes in, out, in, out, in, out. They don't care about the, like you said, the health of a company. But this happened ratios. in all the bubbles. This happened in yeah, all the Yeah, I'm just saying, yes, it's going, yeah. right. It's going on, Pat, but it has gone on before just in a different- Same way. Yeah, a different We all did it. We did it in the dot-com days. We got excited. We came in to his point. So you the know, enthusiasm the is making the bubble. The enthusiasm is making the bubble, sort of here. Well, it contributes to it. So I've heard and, that, and that's an indicative thing of a bubble is when you have what's yeah. going on right now where everyone's just looking for a place to invest, that's indicative of a bubble top. Mm. It's, it's when everybody's looking for the next thing because everything else is too expensive. They're trying to find the place to go and, and enjoy the next up. And it, it, you know, I do I hope I'm wrong? I don't think I'm wrong. And it doesn't matter if I'm wrong because anything that we advocate here just doesn't matter if we're wrong. Because we're on the we're on the side of caution and the euphoria of selling at a good point right now. So in uh, it, 
I try to teach my students something, which is a difficult thing to learn in life, which is you just make the best decisions you can given the information you have. And if it turns out, you know, that wasn't, that there would have been a, a better strategy, that doesn't mean you made a bad decision. If, you know, if there would have been a different outcome, like, right. uh, if I, if I were a football coach and I decide, you know, early, like in, 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 in the first quarter that I'm going to go for it on fourth and 19 and I'm back near my own goal line, most people would say, well, that's a stupid thing to do. Maybe I get away with it, but that doesn't mean it was a smart thing. It's, I, it's very hard to understand, but you just have to make the best decision you can with the information you have. If some of your investors go down, if someone's 90% of the market, they go down to 50 or 60 and the market goes up a little more, that doesn't mean they made a bad decision. Right. right. The decision isn't based on that. I know what's going to happen. If, the, if I knew what was going to happen, I'd be 100% in or, 100, or zero in. We'd all right? be Bitcoin millionaires right now. We all yeah. just had that I, ability to risk. And the reason you diversify you know, I, I, I was giving a talk once and uh, someone interrupted me, which is, is fine. And he said, Professor Dean, you academics are always talking about diversification. Well, Bill Gates didn't get to be the man he is today by diversifying. And this was several years ago. And I said to him, you're absolutely right. If you hold a well-diversified portfolio, you will never be as wealthy as Bill Gates. Of course, if you hold an undiversified portfolio, you will also never be as wealthy as Bill Gates. <laughs> but you could end up as poor as the Enron employees who had all of their retirement uh, savings in Enron stock. So true. That's the thing. So You're true. trying to avoid, you give up winning the lottery in exchange for, for basically getting rid of the risk that you'll end up in, in abject poverty. Yeah. I think, I think what you've done is a great thing. I'm glad I found your writings. I'm glad that you helped me validate some of the things that I wasn't sure about and did it in a way that, that makes sense. If anybody wanted to, to follow you outside of this, is it okay that we uh, send out some things about you so that our sure. audience can check you out? Of course. I've also, as I mentioned, don't know if, who it interests, but I uh, recorded 40 or 50 videos on personal finance topics. Um, and uh, they're all on YouTube. They're all free. Uh, I don't make a cent on them. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I did it. I created a course that I, I taught on a, it called a MOOC, you know, Massive Open Online Course. And I put them mm -hmm. up there. All of my research is available on my website, but it tends to be technical papers. I'm thinking of writing a book for a wider audience. Um, but right now, my papers tend to be a little more technical. Can, can I start you off with an article in our Deserve magazine? Can I have one of my staff writers reach out and, and do an interview on what yeah, you're it'd doing? Yeah, it would be a great follow-up to the podcast. We do have a beautiful magazine for retirees, the baby boomers called Deserve. Um, if, you, you, if you'd be willing to, we'd love to have one of our writers kind of do a story about you. Cause I think the people that follow this podcast are going to want more now on, on YouTube, we can find you by going into making smart financial decisions on YouTube. That should open up the, the yeah. door, right. To get in. Yeah. 
That's okay, right. So, so we'll push the YouTube because I want them to know these things. I want them to, to listen to voice of reason. That's not coming from me who they think I have some agenda. I don't know what they think the agenda is, but I really appreciate your time. You're a fantastic guest. I, uh, I now regret that I didn't connect with you for that radio show, but we spoke late at night and I was in New York and you didn't know you were in California. I don't expect you to remember, but I was kind of like in that REM part of sleep. and like, Ooh, who's this? <laughs> but anyhow, uh, Professor Dean, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. And uh, you're fascinating. Thank you for helping me get some of my directions in the right order here. You've helped hey. a lot. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure talking with you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Hey, this is Pat Charles Avanella, Managing Editor of Deserve Magazine. Thanks again for listening and make sure you subscribe to Deserve Podcast and go visit DeserveMagazine.com.